Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the sandals of whom I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he is in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, and he is with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Righto. Uh, even 16 years after leaving the industry, I, I still tend to think a bit like a farmer does. And, and one of my favourite parables is the parable of the sower which in a few weeks' time we'll be getting to chapter 4, by the way, and um, we'll be able, able to study the, that very parable. And, and I like the way about how it shows how we can be like different soil types and the way that the Word of God, it either grows in us or whether it withers and dies and whether we're either fruitful for God or whether we're just unfruitful. And with the Bible reading this morning, I couldn't help but think of think agriculturally again and, and think about preparing soil so that it's in a good condition, ready for planting. Now, if anybody drives through the irrigation area at the moment, you'll see pretty much most people have got their soil all prepared. How's your soil going, Scott? You got, got it all prepared? Yep, just ready, well and truly. Right, so first of all, they've dug it up and, and ploughed deep and, and busted it open and then just have to keep working it down to get the right tilth and then put in the fertiliser and, and furrow it up, get it all ready and it's all just sitting there waiting for the right time for planting and all we need is for God to send a bit of rain um, or um, start using some irrigation water. So the farmer prepares the soil to give the seed the very best chance of growing into a bountiful crop. When it comes to farming, as with a lot of things, preparation is really important. 
Uh, we had Doug Bingham at our place a few weeks ago uh, doing a bit of painting for us, and, and I noticed that probably about half his time was spent in preparation, uh, which is different to the way I do things when I'm painting. And so that might be why his ended up a really nice job that'll last for years, and mine just ends up being slopping the paint on. Um, preparation's really important. And the Gospel of Mark begins with a message of preparation. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And ta-da, John the Baptist appears. When Mark introduces Jesus, he doesn't introduce us to a little baby boy in a manger. He introduces us to a full-grown man, a man who's the son of God, no less, the son of God who would die in order to save us, but the son of God who we need to have a bit of preparation to meet. And to facilitate that preparation, John the Baptist appears. And the way he's described, out in the wilderness, um, clothed in camel's hair, wearing a belt, eating bush tucker, might say to us, oh, here's a bloke living a bit of an alternative lifestyle sort of thing. But if anyone's familiar with their Old Testament, it very quickly becomes clear this is an image of the prophet Elijah. And this is important. The last words of the Old Testament are these. They come from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Right? So the last verses of the Old Testament are saying, hey, next thing that happens that's really important is I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. And now the opening verses of the Gospel of Mark there's John cutting an image of Elijah, preparing the way of the coming of the Lord. His task, to make a road for God. His method was teaching. And the content of what he taught was turn from your evil ways back to God. Essentially, that has to be the same starting point for, for when we preach the gospel of the good news today. Turn from your evil ways Turn back to God. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the people came from Judea and Jerusalem. That's like saying from the heart of the Bible belt. That's where they came from, confessing their sins. Now, it's pretty clear to me as I read this that baptism isn't some kind of magical religious rite that's going to instantly make somebody righteous before God. It's not baptism itself that saves someone. It's the change of the heart. It's the turning around. It's, it's the reorientation of the whole person. And a key word for us in today's reading is this word repentance. What does it mean to repent? It's pretty important. It keeps getting mentioned over and over again. When John the Baptist preached, he preached the need for the people to repent. 
In verse 15, when Jesus began preaching, his message was pretty much the same. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In chapter 6, when Jesus sent his disciples out to preach, they went out and they proclaimed, guess what? That the people should repent. What's the common factor here? Repentance. There is no coming to Jesus without repentance. There is no salvation without repentance. There is no genuine conversion without repentance. So if it's so important, what is it? Well, in the Greek, the word is metanoia, meaning change of mind, repentance, conversion. One Greek dictionary puts it like this, to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. It's to repent. It's to change one's way. It then makes the point that our English understanding of repentance quite often focuses on the sorrow or the contrition of the person because of the, the experience of their sin. But the Greek metanoia seems to be more specifically about the total change, both in thought and behaviour, with respect to how we both think and act. Now, that's quite a bit different to a gospel that's quite commonly preached today. Um, there's a bit of a modern-day heresy that's becoming more and more popular at the moment. Uh, I've referred to it in the past as easy believism. And, of course, the people who believe it don't call it easy believism, but that's just the best way to describe it. Uh, what it does is it redefines repentance. Um, it picks up on the literal Greek word metanoia, meaning change of mind, and they teach that repentance is to change your mind about who Jesus is, right? Their, their message is just believe in Jesus and he will save us from our sins. All you need to do is add belief of Jesus to your current life and you are saved. And, and what it does is it totally plays down any part that our change of behaviour plays. It, it's a total misunderstanding of what repentance means, and often those who preach in easy believism will say that, well, anyone who teaches anything different is just teaching legalism. But here in the Gospel of Mark, the, this is an example of how repentance works. The people heard the preaching of John the Baptist and they came repenting and confessing their sins, plural. Right? That, now, this is a picture of a complete turnaround. It's not just a change in thinking. It's a complete change in thought and behaviour. They realised that their current life was so full of sin, so they came and they confessed their sins. It was something that they needed to be rid of. And so they repented of it. They turned from their sins and they confessed their sins. And yet in many Western churches today, you'll very well hear the message, believe in Jesus. Uh, but you may not hear the message, repent of your sins. 
Whereas true repentance, the only repentance that counts is both. Believe in Jesus and repent of your sins. And this got me thinking, of course, well, how often do we pray prayers of repentance in our church? And I thought about it, and yeah, most Sundays we do pray a prayer of repentance, but not every Sunday. But in many churches in Australia today, whether they be liberal or even in many churches who claim to be evangelical, you'll almost never hear a prayer of confession being prayed. They might be prayers of coming to Jesus. There might be prayers of commitment, but not so many prayers of, God, I'm sorry for this sin. I guess the point is, Christian conversion is a complete turning from evil toward God. And it's not just a mindset, but nor is it just a keeping of rules and regulations. We turn from evil toward God and our attitude and our behaviour changes. In verse 5, they came confessing their sins, plural. Right? The fact that it's talking in the plural here means they, right, they didn't confess their sin, singular. They didn't just confess a wrong attitude toward God. They confessed their sins, plural, showing that what it's trying to get across is this is individual faults or individual wrongdoings that need to be confessed. In other parts of the Bible, it calls them transgressions. That's the wrong things that we do. It's not just a general change in belief. Any genuine turning to believe in God will always be accompanied by specific repentance of sins and confession of sins. There is no heart further from salvation than a heart that sees no need for confession. I remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Put your hand up if you know that story, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Yep, they came to pray and um, the Pharisee, thank God that I'm, I'm a pretty good fellow, God. I thank you that I've, you've made me such a good bloke that I'm right with you. Not like that other fellow over there. But the tax collector... Standing far off, he, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Guess which one? Jesus said, went home justified. The one who confessed. Right, let's move on. John was a mighty prophet, but he was only ever the supporting act. And he said, after me, there comes one much mightier than I. Now, I'm not even worthy to do up his shoelaces. I'll baptise you with water, but he'll baptise you with the Holy Spirit. The task of the preacher has always been to point to the one who is greater, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you guys, you haven't come here this morning to hear me. I mean, why would you? I'm a nobody. You've come here today to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When it comes to preachers, 
There are some truly amazing orators. There are some thoroughly entertaining public speakers. But if their message is mostly good advice for living, or if it's self-help, or if it's about how to fix your marriage, or how to get rich, or how to get your kids to talk to you again, they've missed the point entirely. The job of the preacher is to teach the need for repentance and confession of sin and to always, always, always point to the good news of Jesus Christ. It's always all about Jesus. We preachers, we're nobodies. And that's the amazing thing about God. God uses nobodies to point to the most important somebody. He uses nobodies to point the world to his own son. Nobodies like you and me. So Jesus himself came to be baptised by John. Not because he needed to repent of sin, because Jesus was sinless. We know this. But something spiritual happened at the baptism of Jesus. As he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, the interesting thing is, Mark doesn't spend any time explaining this. For, the, for him, it just happened. Jesus was baptised. Immediately we have the sign of the Holy Spirit being upon Jesus, but he leaves it unsure whether Jesus is the only one who saw this or whether Jesus and John saw it or whether the other people saw it as well. It's just left a bit unsure. And then there's a public announcement from heaven. You are my beloved son. I'm very pleased with you. Now, some people feel they don't need to be baptised. Um, he was Jesus. He didn't need to be baptised for the repentance of sins. But at his baptism, his heavenly father was very pleased with him. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus was baptised. It just seems that it was very appropriate that he was. Now, as we continue on into the book of Mark, we're going to see that Jesus quite commonly teaches us about the kingdom of God. And it seems to me that baptism is like a citizenship ceremony of becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God, of leaving the kingdom of this world behind and becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, Australians probably know more about citizenship now than what we have in the last last couple of hundred years um, because we've all of a sudden had all of these uh, politicians who seem to be citizens of foreign powers. Now, here's the thing. We can't be a citizen of a foreign power. We can't both be a citizen of this world and a citizen of the kingdom of God. We turn, we denounce our citizenship of this world and we become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And I want to encourage you, if, if there's anyone here today who's given their heart to Jesus, but you've never been baptised, I'd want to encourage you to start thinking, why haven't I been baptised? We're not saved by getting baptised. 
But when we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, the visual sign of our change of allegiance, the visual sign of us leaving behind, denouncing the kingdom of this world and becoming part of the kingdom of God, that visual sign is baptism. And I reckon if God was pleased when his son was baptised, I reckon he's pretty pleased when we are too. So if you've never been baptised and you're a believer in Jesus, I'd encourage you to consider it and come and talk to me about it and we'll pray through it. But I'll tell you what baptism isn't. Baptism is not the point at which all of your troubles are going to disappear. I can promise you that. You know, some people feel that, oh, my relationship with God at the moment's a bit dry. Things aren't going so well. If I get baptised, then my walk with God's going to get so much better. If I get baptised, then I'll be more committed. I'm going to find it easier to resist sin. The temptations are just going to disappear. In your dreams, right? That's not at all what baptism's going to do for you. Once Jesus was baptised, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was there for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now that's, that's all Mark has to say about it. He doesn't describe the temptations like some of the other Gospels do. To Mark, all that matters is that Jesus was tempted he was in a place of danger. He's in a place of loneliness. And in that place, God ministered to him. Now, when you think about it in such simple terms, that's beautiful, isn't it? He was tempted. He's in a place of danger. He's in a place of loneliness. And God met him there. And God ministered to him. And often, not always, but often, for a period of time following someone's baptism, the devil has a real go at them. You see, the devil doesn't like it when we start, take a step of commitment to God. And the devil can't hurt us. I mean, God won't let him. All he can do is tempt us. When we are baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, you know what God's doing for you? He's preparing you for ministry in your own special way, in your own special domain. And Satan doesn't like that. He tries to throw a spanner in the works by tempting us to sin. But here's the lesson. Through temptation, in times of danger, in times of loneliness, in times of need, the Lord will minister to us. And the Lord will provide our needs as he did for Jesus. You know, when we're in those sorts of times when, when life's really bad and life's really tough and when we're struggling with all sorts of temptations, the feeling can be, God, you don't understand. But you know what? He does. He's been there. He struggled with it in Jesus Christ. I find it Interesting that it was the Spirit who drove Jesus out into the wilderness. He drove him out into the wilderness. A lot of Christians, when they're wondering how they're meant to be serving God, um, they think, what's my passion? 
What, what do I like doing? What, do I, what am I good at? What do I really enjoy? Or maybe even what will be fun? And if it feels good, and if it feels like we can do it well, then ah, God must be calling me to that. That must be the ministry he's calling to me. And so uh, when you put that sort of method into practice, apparently God rarely calls pastors to ministries west of the Great Dividing Range. Um, almost never will he call a family with university-aged children hundreds of kilometres from the nearest university, and apparently God delays his call to move if it means that our kids might have to change schools halfway through, and it's amazing how the call of God is so often to much, it's so often much clearer when it's to a beautiful, cool, coastal climate. Um, now, I want, I want you to hear this. Do not confuse your desires with the will of God. Often, not sometimes, often, and I dare to say even maybe usually, the call of God will be to a place that you don't want to go. It'll be to a task that you don't want to do. It may be even be to love a person who you don't want to love. The Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness to a place of tough times, to a place of temptation, to a place of loneliness. How much more do you think the Spirit needs to drive us to go where we don't want to go, to do what we don't want to do, to be where our best friends are not? to serve in a ministry that mightn't be much fun and just a lot of work. But get this, when we are obedient and when we do go where the Spirit leads, even if the Spirit has to drive us there, the Lord goes with us. He ministers to us. And you know what? In my experience, there is no place that I'd rather be them with the Lord, smack bang right in the middle of God's will, there's no better place to be. And there's no greater joy than to experience the provision of the Lord, to experience strength in the face of temptation, to experience provision in the place of need, to experience friendship in the place of loneliness. So Jesus came through his wilderness experience and so were we and so do we. But I just want to say something about wilderness experiences. I'm going to put that in inverted commas, wilderness experiences. Uh, some people talk about a, a wilderness experience as a time of dryness and as a time of being away from God. Biblically, it's nothing of the sort. The wilderness experience, biblically, well, it may be a time of physical and emotional dryness and even distress, but it's a time of spiritual strengthening, a time of spiritual awakening, a time of spiritual upbuilding. And don't we need that? Don't we need that? Verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God 
and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark doesn't tell us how long this is after Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. But it was after John was arrested that the time was right for Jesus to begin proclaiming the good news of God. Now remember, John's task was to prepare the way for God by preaching repentance. Uh, But let me tell you, when you start doing that, you're not going to be a very popular person. And some very powerful people found John's message of repentance offensive to them. And of course, we know from the other Gospels that not only was John arrested, but eventually he was beheaded because the king's floozy didn't like his message that, they, that people had to repent of sin. But this didn't faze Jesus. He stepped in and began preaching almost exactly the same message. Once John had been rejected, the time had now arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The message continues. No matter how many people um, get imprisoned, no matter how many people get executed for preaching that message, that message will continue until the day Jesus returns. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so we sort of do the full circle in this message. We start out with that message from John the Baptist, and now we've come back to it from the lips of Jesus himself. Now, repentance without faith in the gospel is where somebody's trying to be a better person, all right? Now, that might be noble and might be nice trying, but it won't get us into the kingdom of God. Right? And a lot of people have that attitude that being a Christian is all about being a good person. I've just got to be a better person and therefore I'm a Christian and, and that's all that matters. But I'm telling you, that won't get you into the kingdom of God. But likewise, believing that Jesus has saved us from our sins without repentance is a half-hearted mindset of wishful thinking. But that won't get us into the kingdom of God either. To repent and believe in the gospel, the two go together, there's the kingdom of God right there. It's a complete turnaround. Christian conversion is a complete turning from evil toward God. It's not just a mindset, and nor is it just a keeping of rules and regulations. We turn from evil and we turn toward God. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that he has the power to save us. We believe that as we confess our sins, he forgives us of those sins. And so we do it. We repent. We confess. And not only do we say, Jesus, Lord, our whole life is submitted to him because he is Lord. It's a complete turnaround. Have you made that turnaround, is the question. To submit to Jesus as Lord, because he is Lord. And so to repent of and confess your sins as a complete turning from evil toward God. Have you done it?
Do you do it over and over again? I need to, because I sort of tend to keep embracing these, the ways of the world again. And over and over again, I have to renounce that, that citizenship of the, living the way the world wants me to live and turn my heart back to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, once again we hear those words of invitation. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Lord, we are so aware that repentance involves confession. Sometimes we've begun to embrace a shallow, worldly notion of discipleship, belief without change. Oh God, we, we don't only want to be half-hearted for you. But nor do we want to be caught in a striving to make ourselves righteous. Lord, we believe. We believe the gospel. We believe the good news of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus died to save us from our sins. We believe that he rose again, conquering sin and death. Lord, we thank you that your free gift is that when we confess our sins, you forgive us of all unrighteousness. Lord, we confess our pride. We confess our selfishness. Materialism. We confess that our hearts have been drawn to immorality, to greed, to hatred. And not only have they been drawn, sometimes we've embraced them. God, have mercy on us sinners. And Lord, I want to thank you that as we leave this place, that we're no longer full of sin because you've taken it away. And Lord, I thank you for this new chance of holiness. No more than a chance, an assurance of holiness. Lord, we commit our lives to you. And just as the Spirit drove Jesus to where he probably didn't want to go, because you are Lord, you have the right to drive us. And Lord, we, will, we look forward to the adventure as you are with us. When you drive us to serve where and how we would have never chosen for ourselves. Lord, we want to thank you that you are with us in the place of loneliness. We thank you that you are with us in the place of danger, that you are with us in the place of need and in the place of sorrow and despair. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.